0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. In today's episode, we're joined by Peter Vanderhoven. Peter is the co-founder and CEO of Clocktomizer. Many of you will be familiar with ClockTemizer, which was one of the first legal tech products that applied machine learning techniques in an effort to pull actionable data from individual lawyer time records. An M&A lawyer by training, Peter co-founded as he's headed off to get his MBA. He founded ClockTemizer out of frustration with the manual process of reviewing time records to report to clients, and a belief that there had to be a better way. Over the years, ClockTomizer grew into a multi-million dollar business with customers all over the globe until, in April 2021, it was acquired by Letera. Letera, in turn, is a legal tech company that helps legal organizations streamline operations, improve firm-wide profitability, and build and scale pricing and legal management teams, among other things. Letera itself has been on a bit of an acquisition binge in the legal tech space. Today, Peter's with Letera where he continues to build on the successes of ClockDomizer and continue to work on the cutting edge of legal tech and its application to the profession. Our conversation covered Peter's individual journey and how Clocktimizer rose out of an aha moment when he realized that the rich data and time cards could be leveraged with automation. We also talked about his thoughts around the evolution of legal tech and its impact on profitability. It was a wide-ranging and interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Peter, how are you? Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks Steve for having me. It's a pleasure being being on your
0: uh, on your podcast. Where in the world are we finding you? Today I'm in
1: uh, Utrecht, which is what is it? it's about 30 minutes southeast of Amsterdam in the Netherlands.
0: Did I see on uh, LinkedIn that you were just in Chicago here a little bit ago? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was last week. There was the Law Firm Profitability Summit in Chicago and I uh, got the opportunity to present and it's been what is it two and a half years since I last visited the United States, and um, it was good to be back. I always enjoy uh, enjoy visiting Chicago, to be honest. Although it was a bit cold.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it is the <laughs> spring. It does get a little chilly in in Chicago. Uh, was this your first trip to the states since the pandemic? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was, uh, but you know, it was a smooth, actually, everything. So I, I thought, you know, after the pandemic, there might be some uh, some hurdles to uh, to cross or anything, but it was relative. It was uh, very easy, actually.
0: Oh, good. Well, um, I'm sorry to get a chance to see you when you're in our fair city, but it was, yeah, I'm glad you had a smooth trip. Thanks. Thanks. That no, was
1: good. It was all good.
0: I want to talk to you today about Clockdomizer and Laterra, the things you you started in your current enterprise. But before uh, before we do that, I know you were a M&A lawyer for DLA for six or seven years before going to business school. What made you want to be a lawyer? Oof.
1: You know, let me let me scratch my head a bit. I do. I do know why and it's it started, but that's actually you know the decision to go into law school which is a bit earlier but i i still i love playing with language, and so I initially considered studying dutch as you know as a language, but then decided that that was a bit boring, so I wanted to have more action around it, which i got you know it turns out that you know being an m and a attorney is uh, not boring at all but I, I still got to play around with you know language and turns out that, you know, looking at businesses, especially from the corporate side, I really enjoyed doing that. So it's, um, I think that combination was really why I chose this path.
0: But you made a decision to leave the practice and go for your MBA about the same time you started Clocktomizer. I don't know which came first, Clocktomizer or the MBA.
1: Well, there, there's there, there's a story to it. And um, I decided to leave first, but then had the idea of Clocktomizer while I was preparing for my MBA. So it's um they're kind of related, I would say, but it's um so so there are there are, there's a connection there.
0: What was it that made you want to go go and get your MBA? What was it about your experience practicing that caused you to leave the firm and and go more deeply into the business science? Mhm.
1: Well, it, it, it a large part of the, of me won always has been has been very interested in the business side and, and the financial side of, of, of businesses and running a company. And when you're in legal, you're usually more seeing the contract and legal side of it. You're usually brought into the discussions, uh, in M&A at least, when the main decisions have already been made. And I, I wanted to see more. I wanted. I always enjoyed looking into the kitchen, right? It's, it's, you know, why, what contracts do these guys have, but then with whom and what's the effect of it and... I've always felt that, you know, as an attorney, I could do better in terms of understanding how does finance work? Uh, what is the business logic? What's the ratio behind doing this deal? And that was what triggered me to initially look for some more financial education. And then I was also considering, should I con- continue, try become a partner or, you know, after deal number 32? I felt that, you know, that deal 33, deal 34 and so on and so on would not offer as much excitement and as much learning as I could get elsewhere. And I think the combination of things ultimately made me decide to pursue, well, to go to business school essentially.
0: What was your, I know you wound up on the optimizer path, but as you're choosing to go to business school, was it your idea to then go into hardcore business to Move out of the practice, day to day practice of law, and into the business world.
1: Yeah, that was the idea. I was supposed to leave legal behind, and initially, I thought, you know, let's see if I can find myself a position in a company's M and A team. I'm more on the on the business side, but you know, <laughs> that turned out a bit different than I initially anticipated.
0: It, it did indeed, and you're the co-founder of Clocktimizer. It did, and it didn't. Yeah, it, it ended up pretty well. Well, in
1: the end, it it did, right? But it took, uh, what is it, about seven or eight years to get there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) An overnight success, only seven, eight years in the making, yeah? Yeah.
1: No, that's what it is, right? You always hear about the the success stories that, you know, last for a couple of weeks and it's easily forgotten that there's always, uh, well, sometimes a decade or more in in terms of hard work, you know, that that has to happen first. So it's uh, good to keep that in mind when you read the success stories.
0: So I want to talk about the origin story of Clocktomizer a little bit. But before we do that, I suspect our listeners know Clocktomizer. If they don't, it's it's a pretty famous program. But for those people that may not know what Clocktomizer is, give us a little bit about what the product is and what it's designed to do. And then we'll come back to how it got started. Yep, absolutely.
1: So what Clocktomizer does is that it helps professionals in law firms uh, to make data-driven decisions around pricing, budgeting, uh, scoping and and their business analysis. So it does that. Uh, and, and it does so in a unique way by looking at what lawyers put into their time card narratives, right? That description field that sometimes just said miscellaneous or working on the matter. But luckily, most of the time, and I'm talking about 95% plus percent of the time, uh, it's describing the work that they do. And sometimes while it's even it's condensed, but it can still be contain usual us, useful information. And at Clocktomizer, what we developed very early on in in building Clocktomizer is an algorithm that reads through those time card narratives and then classifies the data into what you can call, we call it activities, but essentially it's, these are tasks or deliverables that people have been working on. So we would be able to tell how much time did someone spend on a share purchase agreement? How much time did people spend on due diligence, which then feeds into that part of making decisions around pricing and scoping, right? So that's what, what we've developed. And that has moved into a solution for pricing, budgeting, matter tracking creating meta dashboards and dashboards for key clients, stuff like that. So it's we connect with the firm's financial system, and then we can pull from there and, and build out from there, I would say.
0: I want to dive into that a little more deeply. But before we do that, let's back up to the origin of Clocktomizer. So you're leaving DLA, you're going to start your MBA school with the idea of going to work for an M&A team in a large corporation. Sounds like a reasonable path but suddenly you became a startup guy. Tell us how that happened.
1: Yeah. I don't know. This one day I decided to wear a hoodie and it never came off. <laughs> I think that's not, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. And you know, people, it's unfortunate people can't see it, but you know, I'm wearing my hoodie today, but it's, um, no, the, the, the story is actually, it's its connected. And so I decided to do an MBA. I quit my job at DLA already. And then I was doing all these sorts of training and statistics courses. And I mean, I don't know how it is in the States, but in the Netherlands, in law school, you don't get any statistics training. So it was dubbed a refresher course. For me, it was essentially a crash course. Uh, and there were some things in there that made me realize you know, you don't always need massive amounts of data to let data help you make better decisions. Uh, so what I realized is if, that if you would have data from, what is it, 10 or 20 similar matters, And you would be able to analyze that and break it down into the building blocks of those matters. You could actually use that to make a better informed decision about what the price or quote should be for your new project. And that was really the aha moment when I thought, okay, let's give it a try. I mean, if we can leverage the data that sits in that time card narrative so we can break a matter down into those building blocks but also with that we can identify matters that are quite similar so you don't have if you have only one matter that you know you've previously done that's slightly similar to what you're working on all of a sudden you can find that data that's been hiding there well almost in plain sight and that really well I pitched that idea to a friend of mine who I've known to be a, a tech guy and said you know can you build this and you know he said well give me a try. And six months later, he had built at least the initial version of it. And that that all happened. Well, the aha moment was before business school. Then during business school in the summer, we pitched this to my former boss at DLA who was quite excited about it. So we decided, well, you know, maybe we should give it a shot. And that's what we did.
0: The focus on time card entries seems self-evident now, but it obviously wasn't self-evident prior to Clocktimizer because nobody was doing it. This aha moment where you are focused on the time card entries, what was it about your prior experience that led you to believe that that was a source of information that could be mined?
1: Well, that's, that's actually a really good question because what I had done before while still practicing at DLA was that I sometimes had to send updates to clients. And it, it was always, always surprised me and surprised probably not a strong enough word How we would inform clients about you know where we where we were on fees, so we would say, well, hey, we've built you X, uh, and by the way, we've recorded Y amount of hours that have not been built yet. Full stop. That was our update. It's like how how on earth are clients accepting this as an update? So I decided to change that earlier on, and the way I did that was by you know loading those entries into Excel uh, and manually. Putting them into buckets so that I could give them a, mo- a better breakdown in terms of you know what have we spent our time on, and more importantly, what have we spent our time on that we initially didn't agree that we would be spending time on. So I could have regular discussions with my clients and, and say, well, you know, as part of the deal, all of a sudden we have to do with overseas jurisdiction that we initially did not envision to bring into this project. But you know, it's going to cost us an, another five k. Do you want to handle it yourself? The obvious answer was no. But you know, the moment that you have that conversation, all of a sudden it's not contentious anymore. And when you send the bill, there's no surprise. And I think that's when, you know, the it was for a while that I had realized that there was data in those time entries. But I never, so it took me a while to come up with the idea that you could actually industrialize and automate a lot of that. And that brings way more value to it because when I did this project, was a big project. So it could have my time looking through that data and doing that manually. But many, in many cases, you just don't have the time to do that. So you need to automate it. And I think kind of bringing that together in the idea, I think that's where, uh, that's what made the idea a good idea, I guess.
0: Yeah, and you you make it sound so obvious and simple, but it is neither obvious nor simple. You had to solve for a whole host of problems, some technological, various financial systems, various languages. But I'm interested, you hit on this earlier when you were mentioning it, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the fact that the time card entries, at least that I've reviewed over my years, and I've reviewed many thousands of time card entries, Oftentimes they describe what's actually happened, but you said 95% of the time they describe what happened. I think that's a generous description. You know, the garbage in, garbage out problem, the miscellaneous, the call with client, those entries. How did you address that problem?
1: Well, there's a couple of things that we did. And first of all, I think, you know, that we've been, how do you say that, riding the tailwinds of e-billing systems that were scrutinizing those entries more and more. Because of that, I think the quality has significantly increased. So while, you know, those e-billing systems may not provide you with all these insights, they did trigger better data quality. And hence, we were able to extract it better. So we did see some difference between jurisdictions and how, well-established e-billing solutions were in that particular region. And, and so, for example, in, in the Netherlands with firms that you know, don't do many international projects, there is less rigor, less hygiene around that. So that was kind of, I think, maybe even a benefit that we started from outside of the US because we had to think about that earlier on because the data quality was not always as good. It is really good right now, to be honest, but it wasn't always. But, you know, so first and foremost, I think, you know, the financial hygiene that comes with e-billing has been helping us. But the second thing is that we've also been very always transparent around it. So we've never pretended that we could solve for 100 percent of the problem. But the question when you do data analytics and here's also still a lot of evangelism almost that, you know, whenever you make a decision, you're never going to have 100 percent good information. You never will never know 100%. You will not know what happened next month, right? You just don't know. I mean, we we signed a lease, what was it? Two months before the pandemic hit. Well, you never know what, what will happen in the future, right? That's just not possible. But you can make better decisions based on some of the historical data, but it doesn't have to be 100% perfect. And maybe that's one of the things that you learn in business school, that you make decisions in uncertainty. And this is one of the things. So we said we've always been transparent and said, you know, we cannot classify every single time card, but we'll show you when we can't. And we'll allow you to run some statistics and analytics on who does do good time card and who doesn't. And that then, you know, is the kind of the first step. You know, once you give people the tools to look into it, you know, it actually becomes a reason for good data hygiene and data quality in itself to be able to run analytics off of it. And we've seen that, you know, making it more transparent has helped lawyers to become better in how they write their time
0: cards. The issue around certainty that you're talking about, that you're not going to get 100% accuracy in the data, it's not always an easy message for lawyers to accept because they're, they're looking for things to be perfect or things to be certain. How did you deal with that dynamic as you're growing clocktimizer? that had to have come up in the sales and in business development cycle
1: Well, and I think it's still something that we're dealing with and still finding out how we can do that in a better way. What has really helped us is that there are people in law firms that do get this. And I think our aim has been to find those people let them help you, empower them to show what it can do. And here's one thing, right? I mean, I've been a lawyer myself. I've been trained to identify risks and, you know, saying, well, you know, we cannot do everything and we cannot recognize every single time card. That's been a risk, but it also has been transparent. And then what we could do is we could show evidence of what we did recognize. And that's the good thing about lawyers is that, you know, when you show them the evidence, what you can do, that might actually help them change their opinion. And I think that's so, you know, we we, that's how we've approached it many, many times is, you know, let's just see if we can get someone who's enthusiastic and then help those people to show evidence to people that are cynical or skeptical is the better word and see if we can convince them. And the, the best thing is that if you have people that were initially skeptical and then are actually converted, those are always your best advocates in a way. So that that's been our approach. But I think, you know, I, Message of warning: whenever someone says that you know in prediction or in data analytics they can do something hundred percent right, just don't trust them because that's not possible.
0: Yeah, it's like the old story if your true false question has in it always or never it's never true so you sp- you're an overnight success over seven or eight years, and <laughs> you've joined forces with Lotera, where where Collectimizer was acquired. lotera has been on a bit of uh, that was like a year ago if I've got that right. Yep, exactly. Almost to the day. Uh, congratulations. Now, Lotera has been on a bit of a buying spree over the last couple of years with foundation, not just Clocktomizer, but foundation software, Docscore, Allegory and Workshare, Doxley. Tell me the strategy of Lotera and how Clocktomizer fits into that strategy. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so the strategy for for Latera is that we want the end client. So that means, you know, a client of law firms, uh, we want to help and drive efficiency and client satisfaction, as well as driving profitability. That actually makes sense to not only look at the practice of law, which is where literature originally comes from, right? It's the drafting products. It's where DoxCorp sits. But then also, you know, Doxley and uh, more recently Kira, they all focus on the practice of law, but there's a lot of efficiency and profitability gains to be won in what we call the business of law practice. And that's been the strategy for the last year is to build out that data and in- intelligence and business of law part of law firms. And so that's that's where also, for example, ProsperaWare comes in. That's been our focus. But our core focus always is, can we help lawyers and other professionals in law firms be more efficient and drive client satisfaction?
0: And I take it the goal is to have a comprehensive and integrated suite of products, services, capabilities that is unique in the market. Because legal tech has grown up to be a very... It's still currently very dispersed. Maybe it's the wrong word.
1: Well, there there has been a consolidation, of course. And I think one of the drivers of what we do at Litera is that we see that there is a need for some vendor consolidation. But I think it's also important to stress that you know it's not as if uh, Litera will be like this one set of all-encompassing solutions. How I see it is that we are working in an ecosystem, but that still sounds a bit fluffy, right? It's, it's along the lines of paradigm shift and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't really talk that sort of, sort of language really well. So what I, what I mean by that is that what firms want is that their software works well together, no matter of who produces it, right? So whether you have Microsoft Word, which is obviously not owned by Litera, but by Microsoft, you know, it, it, it should work well with Litera's products. But then, you know, if we take foundation, for example, it should work well with iManage or with Interaction or with whatever other solution we have in the space. And I I mean, there's still a long way to go, but I think we recognize that we're not going to be the only vendor for a law firm. I mean, if only because they buy a lot of stuff from Microsoft. So for us to have that central position in the market and see how, how we can integrate well and connect well with other software so that in the end, we provide a seamless experience for law firms and lawyers, I think that's much more the aspiration than being only vendor for law firms. I don't see that happen. Despite the fact that you know, we'll probably buy more stuff, but it's, um, <laughs> it's, we're not going to buy everything. And you know, there's also new things coming up, right? And I think if you're really an ecosystem and a supportive ecosystem. There's new companies that are doing things differently, but you know, for the better, for the better for the end user, for the better for the client. I think we want to help them succeed and we want to help accelerate that digital transformation that law firms are going through.
0: You spend a lot of time in the market, a lot of time conferences, a lot of times talking to clients, both uh, in-house legal teams and the law firms, and th- there is a digital transformation going on. Who's driving that transformation? Is it the client side? Is it the law firm side? Is it the alternative service provider side and the changes they're breaking? In, in your judgment, where's that impetus coming from?
1: I wish there was a clear answer. And I do have a clear opinion of where it should come from, but I'm not always seeing that. Uh, and that's not because I'm blamed. So I think it should be driven primarily by clients because they're pushing for it. And in certain ways they're doing it, right? With the e-billing stuff they've been pushing it. Now see what we can do. There's all this operational data that you know we can put to work to make law firms more efficient. But at the same time, a lot of clients and definitely not all of them and my good friend Justin at GSK is, you know, they're pushing for fixed fees across the board, but there's not many clients that are doing that. And by allowing firms to just work off the billable hour and there's just too much work, so they still can and firms it's hard for clients to push for it I, I get that, but if you're a bank and you spend millions with a firm, I think you can push for a changes to happen and you can push for you know let's work off a fixed fee arrangements and the moment that you know that becomes commonplace and it's slowly getting there slowly but surely, then there is an incentive for law firms to Really start thinking, how do we deliver more efficiently? Because, you know, if we can do the work in 50% of the time while getting like 80% of the fees, that's a pretty sweet deal. And this is what I've been advocating, and everyone who talks to me about it, you know, is kind of, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> they take a deep breath and they sit it out, hopefully, or they leave. But uh, <laughs> I think I, th- I think that's 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 where we need to change. And I'm actually on a Sandpiper panel tomorrow, and we'll probably uh, three hours long have this conversation on. You know who who drives change. Who needs to change, and will it change? And there's people that are quite skeptical, and they say, "Well, ten years ago we were talking about the the death of the billable hour." You know, you know, you've heard that story.
0: Oh, we've been talking about that for twenty years. Yeah,
1: (laughs) many times. Yeah, there you go. Right. And and when we just started in 2013, I think we had the market wasn't as good as it is today. So uh, I maybe we just need a little, you know, a little dip. And then people realize, oh, wait, maybe we need to become more efficient again. But I don't know. That's, that's, I, I don't want to wish it on anyone. So that's why I'm careful making that statement.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And it's been interesting. I've been in this business a long time, and it's been interesting watching the impact of economic cycles affect this change dynamic in the profession, you know, the Great Recession, and then the pandemic. And... The industry has come out of the pandemic in an incredibly strong financial position. The last couple of years have been sort of amazing. Have you seen that impact, the desire to beef up on technology or to drive efficiencies, either driving change or impeding change?
1: I think there is not necessarily a need to change if you just had one of the most profitable years in the history of the firm. That makes it really hard to make a compelling story if you want to drive change. But I think there are some market factors that some firms are further ahead than others. But I think talent at the moment and and retaining talent is a tough one. And And I think... That firm, you know, even if it's not necessarily for in terms of efficiency or profitability, because they're making so much money that they don't know what to do with it. It's so they distribute it to partners instead of investing it for the future. But you know, that story is not new either. But I think that some of some of the, and I think it would be a good thing if some of that new technology that people bring in is designed to help people deal with the high levels and high amounts of work and make it a nicer place to work. If you don't have to. You know, check all the individual cross references in the document because there's software that does that for you. I could tell you that, you know, that would have helped me 12 years ago. I wish that software had existed or that I knew that it existed at the time, but I could easily spend hours on that. And I think that might be a driver that hopefully helps us push both efficiency for the sake of the client, but also efficiency and and time savings for the sake of the mental health of associates.
0: Uh, That's such an interesting point. I don't know that I've heard it articulated that way because the one role I've always advocated for for technology is to let the humans do what the humans need to do and have the capability to do and get them out of the rote, routine, document review cycle that machines can do. And I've not heard it articulated the way you just articulated in terms of lawyer satisfaction or, or lawyer retention. That's an interesting point.
1: Yeah, and I think it's been driven by the Great Resignation, and I think we we see some of that over here in in Europe, albeit not maybe that as much as you see it in in the States. But that has has been a big thing, and we see that associate attrition in law firms is I wouldn't dare wouldn't say they're saying that it's a at a record high, but it's certainly high. And I think what's driving that is that I don't think people are scared of hard work. I don't I don't believe that. I think if people are doing meaningful, interesting work where they can learn where they can develop themselves. I think there's no shortage of people that want to work hard. And I think people are often confusing that with a millennials or gen z and, they say, and and you know you get almost that condescending thought as you know they don't want to work hard. I don't think that's the case. Actually, I would quite heavily oppose that. But I do think that they're not willing to do hard work if it's not meaningful or if it could be done more efficiently. And I think people are not willing to do that. And I think that's actually a good change. And then, you know, still, there's a lot of work to be done. So we need to be more efficient to make sure that we can actually get all that legal work done. So I think that combination of a change in people's mindsets as to what does work mean to me, I mean, obviously, it's still a a way to provide. But I think many younger people in the workforce, and I, I start to sound really old when I say that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and honestly, I, I've hit 40 last November. So, you know, I, I probably am officially old for people that are just joining firms. But the idea that, you know, hey, we, I could do this work from a beach in Thailand, that notion, I think, has, has really taken off. And while that may be more of a dream or a kind of an ideal for some, The flexibility around that and, you know, the fact that you don't want to sit in an office from 8 a.m. in the morning until after midnight, sometimes leaving your coat hanging over a chair so that people think you're still in the office, that kind of thing. I think, well, I hope that's a thing of the past. And I think in wider society, you see that drive for diversity and inclusion. But that also means, you know, parents, single parents are still given the opportunity. And I think this, everything that we do with technology today helps drive that inclusion as well. And I feel quite strongly about this. Maybe it's more hope than anything else that's speaking here, but I do hope that this will help us make that transition.
0: That's a great point. And I hope it will as well. We've run over. I appreciate your indulging us and making time for us today. I know how swamped you are and how busy your schedule is. Thank you very much for the conversation. It's been fabulous.
1: And I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.